The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Can we find extraterrestrial civilizations by searching the cosmos for their pollutants? Are humans hardwired to be productive? And what can we learn about leisure from hunter-gatherer societies? Plus, a big uh uh-oh from HBO Max and masks that are sure to freak out everyone you encounter. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The search for alien life, once considered a thing of science fiction, has become more and more sophisticated and respected over the past several decades, and a new paper published last month in the Astrophysical Journal proposes a new strategy for searching for intelligent life, specifically for extraterrestrial civilizations, searching for pollution. Ravi Koparapu first had the idea when he saw reports about how drastically the levels of nitrogen dioxide had decreased in urban centers around the world at the start of lockdown. Nitrogen dioxide, or NO2, is a pollutant that's a result of things like combustion and fossil fuel use, but also biological things like soil emissions and lightning. Quoting Wired, The shutdown had shown what atmospheric scientists had struggled to accurately measure up until that point, that the majority, roughly 65% of Earth's NO2, is from non-biological sources, the combined result of our commuting, manufacturing, and gas and metal refining. If this was the case, Koparapu wanted to know, would it be possible to detect this gas in the faraway atmospheres of exoplanets? And if it was, could we be looking at a civilization not unlike our own that had made use of its own fossil fuels to drive a technological revolution? We're producing three times more nitrogen dioxide than what biology and lightning together are producing, says Koparapu of our own planet. So if we see an Earth-like planet and the nitrogen dioxide signal, and we make a model for all the biological and atmospheric sources possible, and still cannot explain the amount we're seeing on the planet, then one possibility is that there could be a technological civilization. End quote. Koparapu is essentially working with the theory that nitrogen dioxide could be a techno-signature, or a technological marker used in the search for life elsewhere in the universe. In the past, it's been things like radio signals, but more recently it's expanded to lasers, atmospheric gases, and more. Koparapu and his team explored this idea by building, quote, A computer model that mimicked a single column of atmosphere on an Earth-like planet and calculated the odds that we could find traces of NO2 on one of our galactic neighbors. Their model simulates the exposure of atmospheric molecules to sunlight, specifically four different types of sunlight modeled off of our own sun, an orange dwarf star, and two M-type stars like Proxima Centauri. Each star emits a unique spectrum of light that interacts with the atmospheres of orbiting planets and causes photochemical reactions. On Earth, these reactions are what give us an ozone. When radiation, or light, from the sun heats up molecules in the atmosphere, they enter a temporarily excited state in which a number of things can happen. 
They can break apart, or they can bond together, and on the ground, they can become plant food. Different types of radiation from other types of stars could mute or stimulate an NO2 signal. Determining the photochemical reactions happening in a faraway atmosphere takes an advanced and extremely fine-tuned telescope fit with a spectrograph. Astronomers have to focus this telescope on a relatively minuscule and fast-moving planet as it transits in front of its host star. During this brief window, the telescope can capture the light beaming through the planet's atmosphere and break it apart with a prism. The bands of the prism tell us the composition of the atmosphere by way of a unique spectral signature that each element displays, almost like a fingerprint. If an alien civilization had polluted its skies with NO2 the way we have ours, this would clue us in to their existence. End quote. Kobarapu and his team determined that we could possibly find this signal using the next generation of advanced telescopes. Even if they were able to get the funding to get use of one of the upcoming telescopes and found a good Earth-like, sun-star-like orbiting planet in the habitable zone to conduct observation on, there are still a number of possible complications, including the fact that clouds and aerosols in a planet's atmosphere could mimic the NO2 signal, since they all absorb light within the same wavelength region. And, quoting again, planets around stars that are slightly smaller than our sun, K and M type stars, could produce a stronger NO2 signal since these stars produce less ultraviolet light, which can break apart this gas in the atmosphere. That might lead to an overestimate of its prevalence, and an indicator of civilization when there may be none. End quote. There's also a question about the chemical lifetime of nitrogen dioxide. On Earth, nitrogen dioxide transforms into nitric acid within 5 to 10 days of being produced, but it may not be the same in other atmospheres. Renu Hu, a planetary scientist and expert in exoplanet atmospheres at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, says, quote, In exoplanet atmospheres, since their atmospheric conditions could be quite different than Earth, perhaps this NO2 will have a longer lifetime and therefore accumulate at a higher abundance. End quote. For now, Kobarapu and his team are planning a follow-up study using a 3D model that could simulate an entire atmosphere as a whole, as opposed to just that one column. So we'll see what comes there and in the larger overall field of technosignatures. And one critique of searching for technosignatures in the past has been that they necessitate an expectation on other civilizations to be sending out things like radio signals. And that's even if we happen to be living at the same time as other civilizations. But that's why Koparapu is excited about the nitrogen dioxide search. It doesn't require that other civilizations do anything. He said, quote, They can just go on about their lives and be completely unaware that we exist while we are observing their planet. In the next 20 years or so, we may launch space telescopes that could look at the atmospheres and potentially image faraway habitable planets. If we can do this within 150 years of industrial civilization and less than 100 years of developing radio communication capability, how many civilizations have already done this to us within our Earth's history of billions of years? End quote. And that's always been one of the questions for me. If there are other civilizations out there, are they also trying to make contact? Or are they perhaps passively observing us without us knowing just as Koparapu is intending to do with them.
Most of us are overworked or overstressed or both. We work too hard and when we're not working, we worry we're not doing enough. Your boss may preach work-life balance, but the slack notifications that bleed into your evenings and weekends disagree. And even our leisure time is competitive, productive, analyzed. How much screen time did you clock this week compared to last? How many steps did you walk today? How do your stats add up to your friends? You took up a new hobby, but how long before you share your progress on Instagram and then start selling it on Etsy. We don't need the constant barrage of think pieces to tell us we're overworked or addicted to productivity. We can feel it. But for all the specific problems of this era, humans' tendency towards busyness is not new. And we may need to look back to hunter-gatherer societies for some tips on how to chill out. According to research done by University of Maryland sociologist John P. Robinson in 2012, based on 40 years of time use and happiness surveys, the happiest people are those whose free time is completely full, but who don't feel rushed. The more unhappy ones were those with too much free time, and even more unhappy, the ones who felt rushed even though they also felt underscheduled. So where do these feelings come from? In a review of anthropologist James Sussman's book Work, A Deep History from the Stone Age to the Age of Robots, The Atlantic explains Sussman's research on the Yuhansi Bushmen, a tribe in Namibia and Botswana who lived entirely isolated until the late 20th century. Sussman found, quoting The Atlantic, The Yuhansi spent an average of 17 hours a week finding food, and devoted another 20 to chores, as Sussman gleaned from other ethnographies and first-hand research. This left them with considerably more downtime than the typical full-time employee in the U.S. who spends about 44 hours a week doing work, and that doesn't include domestic labor and childcare. In that downtime, the Yuhansi remained strikingly free over centuries from the urge to cram it with activities that we would classify as productive, or for that matter, destructive, end quote. So maybe leisure is the default human setting more so than productivity. But The Atlantic points out that, similar to gorillas and chimpanzees, our old ancestors, Australopithecus, would spend about eight hours a day foraging and eating. Gorillas and chimpanzees then sleep for nine to twelve hours, so there's not too much time for leisure. What makes Homo sapiens different? Well, much has been said about the Industrial Revolution basically inventing leisure time, at least for the upper class, but there was another innovation that helped create leisure time much earlier on. Fire. Quoting again, Fire changed everything. Anthropologists don't know precisely how humans first marshaled fire for their use roughly one million years ago, but it's obvious how fire formed humans. By softening meat and vegetables, fire pre-digests our food, allowing us to eat and retain more calories in less time. By warding off predators, fire allowed our ancestors to climb down from their tree beds and sleep soundly on the ground. More REM sleep sharpened their memory and their focus. Fire also allowed humans to grow huge, energy-greedy brains that gobble up about a fifth of our calories, a far greater proportion than other primates' brains consume. By expanding our minds and our free time, fire sparked humankind's capacity for boredom, amusement, craftsmanship, and art. And from what we can discern, our Homo sapiens ancestors celebrated the gift of free time with gusto. End quote. But then came the concept of thinking ahead to the future, 
something hunter-gatherer societies didn't really do, especially in tropical climates. It was the agricultural revolution when farming necessitated preparing for the changing of the seasons that things began to change, bolstered by the rise of finance, and then of course education, and the modern framing of work, the idea that people would train up for their whole childhoods and in many cases years into adulthood to learn a set of skills for which they would be sufficiently compensated. There are holes in that in practicality, of course, but overall, future thinking, I would say, has been a net positive for society. You know, it's how various inventions and innovations have come to pass. But on an individual level, might we be better off living more in the present? Or are there other ways to cut down on some of the anxieties we currently experience? Drastic anti-capitalist remodelings of our societies aside, Sussman points out two other intriguing elements of hunter-gatherer societies— First, interchangeability, as coined by French sociologist Emile Durkheim. Basically, the idea that people would tag in for different jobs. Chiefs and shamans might take turns as foragers and hunters, and this led to a stronger sense of community and shared values, but isn't really something that happens now. Maybe within smaller workplaces like startups and nonprofits, but not across fields. You know, as The Atlantic says, you don't have lawyers subbing in to perform brain surgery. But this specialization and related sense of competition have made our focus perhaps too heavily on work. According to a recent Pew Research Center survey, most Americans ranked a job or career they enjoy above marriage and children. And the other element is that competition factor. According to Sisman's research of the Yuhansi tribe, they have all kinds of safeguards built into their society to prevent ego and competition. For example, if a hunter brings back a particularly good kill, he might be ridiculed for it. Or the credit will go to the person who made the arrow used for the kill, not to the hunter. That way, no one will get too big of a head about their hunting abilities. It's fascinating, but also kind of evidence that things like ego and competition are natural human traits, not things we developed during the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution or a plague of late-stage capitalism. Even if some societies might have it a little more together and value leisure more than productivity, they still have to work for those values. As The Atlantic says, quote, safeguarding leisure is work, end quote. The question is, how much are we willing to work for it? So this is one of those mistakes that is so huge, I'm kind of skeptical that it wasn't done on purpose. An HBO Max glitch yesterday caused some people who were trying to watch Tom and Jerry to instead see the Zack Snyder Justice League cut 10 days before its scheduled release. One of the first people to notice and tweet about it, Doug Bass, managed to watch the first hour of the film before it was cut off. Others who caught it before it was taken down posted screenshots and even a 45-second clip of a highly anticipated scene, but all materials have since been taken down after Warner Brothers filed copyright claims. HBO Max has acknowledged the glitch happened and said it's been resolved, but I can't imagine all is peachy keen over there right about now. And one more thing, if you're starting to get bored with your array of face masks or you miss showing off the lower half of your face, a new company called Maskalike has your back. Or, I guess, your front. For 30 bucks, you can upload a selfie and get an eerily realistic mask with the bottom half of your face printed on it, roughly to scale and made using image warping software. 
You've got to go check out the photos on their site of examples because they're very weird and hilarious, mostly because of how high quality they actually are. Like, there's a few other companies like this out on the market, but these are the most realistic ones that I have seen yet, so check them out at the link in the show notes. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.